Cast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history, with George Hoare, Philip Cunliffe, and myself, Alex Hochili. On today's episode, Phil interviews one of his former colleagues from his time at the University of Kent, Albina Asmanova, about critical theory, the paradox of emancipation, her criticisms of Thomas Piketty, and why we should be thinking in terms of precarity capitalism, not neoliberalism. Albina is a social and political theorist, author of a number of works, including most recently the widely discussed and reviewed Capitalism on Edge, which was published by Columbia University Press in 2020. The interview was recorded on the 22nd of February, 2023. Here's Phil and Albina. So one of the last times that we met um, face-to-face, uh, or um, not the most recent time, but the time before that, it was at a book launch last year for another Canterbury colleague and also former podcast guest, Charles Devalen. And when we met at that book launch, you told me that you'd been invited to speak at a meeting of the OECD. Um, and you were especially concerned because um, the invitation came from a politician who was also you know, renowned conservative. So I wondered if you could tell me um, a little bit about how the meeting went, um, mm. what happened at the meeting, and also perhaps uh, more importantly, um, if you could also tell us a little bit about the challenges of um, preserving your scholarly integrity and your intellectual independence as you're being drawn into providing political advice to powerful people and institutions. Um, well, <clears throat> in truth, uh, that event was daunting. I was invited to uh, talk about uh, my book on, on uh, the missing crisis of capitalism and, and, and the spread of uh, precarity uh, throughout society uh, at the OECD Council that is on the level of ambassadors. Uh, and, and the event was chaired by um, Secretary General of the OECD, um, no, it was that it was both brutal and fun. It was brutal because I was in a position of a, um, how shall I say, like a, a surgeon um, confronting uh, this hefty patient and saying, "Oh, oh, oh, oh you are uh, you are guilty of not only." You know, damaging yourself, your societies, but damaging the world. Um, so, what what is the OECD? Let's let's remind our listeners. Um, it is an entity composed of the richest um, Western countries, uh, aiming, as as they define themselves, aiming to stimulate economic progress and world trade. And how did I do this stimulation by? creating um, a global integrated capitalism on, you know, the, 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 the rules of, of free market capitalism um, through free trade. And, and, and you know, that we, we all know the, the outcome of that. Uh, environmental devastation and precarity for all. Now, mm, 
it was so it was it was brutal in the way that I had to confront the culprit and 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 in a way bring them to account and I say well this is the damage done um, and they had to engage with that because that was the whole point of coming to my book talk and in, but but the, the 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 discussion was very curious because I observed there a split between the neoliberals or, or, or the economic liberals who were still clinging to this vision of, of, of progress, uh, material uh, progress um, uh, through, you know, free market capitalism. And then the more traditional conservatives um, who are saying, well, yeah, the, the, the state has abrogated its responsibility to society. So there's something wrong with that. Uh, and, and it was really good fun for me to observe this clash between the ambassadors. There was, a, there was at some point when, when two ambassadors were, were seriously debating um, my position. I didn't have to say much. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of what is the role of a critical theorist and don't we risk to become complicit with the people we are advising? Um, look... Um, I am personally, I have no patience with uh, dispassionate and politically sheltered critique. I think that so far that, uh, that uh, critical theory is committed to emancipation. We should also uh, speak truth to power in terms of, you know, um, advising, critiquing, the people who are in power because they have the capacity to do something about the situation. What is what's important is not to get trapped in partisanship, partisanship to the left, to the right. This is what I, I try to stay away from, not to be trapped in, a, in an available dogma, even if that dogma makes us very much uh, feel uh, on the right uh, side of history. Um, but this is, as long as the, the, we as academics, as thinkers, uh, stay away from dogma and partisanship. We should be engaged in politics. Yeah. And so you've mentioned, and this is something I did want to talk about, you've mentioned um, before, so before we talk more directly about the book, you've mentioned a little about your background and you discuss it a bit in the introduction to the book. Um, you say you're Bulgarian by birth. Well, you are Bulgarian by birth. You grew up in the dying days of the communist regime. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little about this um, and how far this uh, experience of the end towards the end of the Cold War, how mm. far it shaped your political outlook today. And if you could also tell us a little bit more about the dissident politics that you were involved in. Hmm. Uh, well, surely I, I... So I'm born in 1968. So you can imagine I completely grew up under communism um, and I was raised to be... A good communist, um, and I joined the dissident movement as good communist because what we saw around us uh, very much deviated uh, from the plan. <laughs> the plan was to create a society of, of, of you know, um, solidarity and 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 personal and and you know, collective flourishment, and that what uh, we had was actually oppression and. Uh, you know, 
yeah, mostly political oppression uh, and a, a lot of stratification. There was this joke at the time that in the classless society, whiskey is served only in first class. So the elites had this um, prosperous, uh, privileged life uh, while um, the rest of the population uh, lived in economic comfort, but as a second class citizens. So uh, what made me engaged then, and, um, and th which brings me back to this um, idea of, you know, how, how, how do we engage in politics while remaining critical theorists? So at the time I, I, I engaged as uh, a critical person, uh, criticizing communism from the left, and what's important as a critical theorist is, is to stay away from partisanship. So, because partisanship is dogmatic and, and the dogma, uh, socialist, capitalist, any dogma is uh, deadly uh, to critique. Pres presumably you came to critical theory at a later point. No, actually I studied, um, I read people like Marcuse and Horkheimer as a first year student uh, studying political science in Bulgaria and that was in 1987-88. So, and I suppose, was that the, was that characteristic of the dissident movement as a whole, the clash between kind of lived reality and the, what the regime said about itself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was, you know, the, the widely spread language to express our frustration at the time was, this is not normal. So this sense of abnormality, that this is not right, it is, it's exactly the way, um, you know the uh, people like Ador Theodor Adorno, the, the the philosopher from the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, uh, describes the the entry point of critique. You know when something you experience, you don't know what the right thing is, but we don't need to know what the right thing is as long as wrong as we know that if something is wrong, and we we fight that we're moved by that sense of uh, injustice. And yeah. we act on it. Yeah. And so how, how, so you feel, I mean, how formative was the experience of dissidents in the end of the Cold War? How formative has that been for your, for your later kind of intellectual development and career? <laughs> um, my life afterwards was very different. I went to study, to do my PhD in New York. Um, but I guess it was formative because uh, I became dissident twice. First, I fought so, uh, socialism or you know state uh, socialism, and 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 then I wrote a book about how to bring down capitalism. So this um, uh, apparently I'm attracted to uh, you know being a contrarian on the contrarian <laughs> position uh, or the dissidency. Um, yeah, I guess it's a matter of character. So did you, was there a particular point that you became kind of disillusioned with capitalism at the end of the, after the end of the Cold War? Or was it something that you were always skeptical about with respect to the changes oh, um, that you wish to see? Yeah, actually, uh, already under, under socialism, when we were reading uh, such books, for instance, uh, Marcuse's uh, One Dimensional Man, uh, describing uh, the consumer society. Um, yeah. So the, the consumer, the consumer capitalism was never uh, something that looked very attractive or very seductive. 
Um, and um, so there, there, there was no, no point of switch, in fact. Uh, we fought socialism, state socialism, without embracing capitalism. So that position uh, has also driven my thinking about alternative uh, alternatives. I don't think we need to be trapped in that binary, you know, capitalism yeah. or socialism. And this is very central to my book. And how do you reckon Bulgaria has fared since the end of the Cold War? And if that, if its experience, say, over the last 20 years or so, if that, um, or 30 years indeed, yeah. if that tells us, yeah. um, you know, what that, if that gives us any kind of insight into um, capitalist development more generally in the wider world? Yeah, <laughs> Bulgaria has fared terribly, as uh, most of, of, of the post-communist uh, world. Uh, capitalism has been absolutely brutal there, um, especially because it was economic liberalism um, did not combine with cultural and political liberalism. So it developed as autocratic, heavy, uh, messy, uh, yet heavy, um, autocratic mafia uh, style uh, capitalism. So no, it has not been a success story. And 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 funny enough, I saw that uh, emerging already while we were um, uh, engaged in the student protest in eighty nine ninety. Um, there, I wrote an article called "Dictatorships of Freedom," saying that the what. This pseudo transition to, to to capitalist democracy is, uh, in fact, um, something like uh, the old regime coming back from the ashes uh, under a different, you know, a different form, but essentially the same. And, that and why why was it, why was it essentially the same? Um, the same system of of privilege, the same system of. Um, well, see, socialist societies at the time, they were consumer society, truly, I mean, uh, in, in terms of motivation. Uh, so the same kind of um, vulgar consumerism, it just flourished. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the nomenclature, I mean, was it the same faces, the same kinds oh, of yeah. people? Actually, yeah. the, the person who at the time threatened to throw me out of the university because uh, when I signed up, in this dissident movement, it was an environmental movement. Um, I didn't know that that movement was actually doing anything against uh, the party. Yeah, as a good communist, I thought mm, defending the environment, protecting, uh, fighting for human uh, rights. Yeah, it is uh, totally in line with uh, the communist doctrine. But then uh, the dean of my university called me and said, "Well, you have signed." Uh, into a club that doesn't have the blessing of the Communist Party, we have to withdraw, uh, throw you out of the university, expel you, or you have to withdraw your signature. Um, I didn't yeah. withdraw my signature. They did not throw me out, uh, but uh, the same person, once the regime fell, became the leader of the Democratic Party. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think there, in a nutshell, the is probably... Yeah. yeah, there, I think, is probably... Uh, like a story that repeats across Eastern Europe, I'm mm. sure in many mm. different, many different contexts and circumstances. Um, and just before we um, get to the book more directly, I'm also I'm also curious, and I'm sure my, my listeners are as well. Um, 
if you could tell us perhaps a little about how um, the Ukraine war is filtering into oh. Bulgarian politics, if indeed it is, mm-hmm. um, especially given kind of Bulgaria's traditionally pro-Russian position. Yes, well, the population is split. Uh, there is um, very much um, it's, it's the, the the pro-Russian sentiment is there, um, but there is an understanding uh, generally that this invasion is is a terrible thing, and even you know the Bulgarians are so close uh, to Ukraine, they feel vulnerable, they feel threatened by this invasion. Yeah. Um, so it's it's very difficult, exactly this tension between. The traditional pro-Russian sentiment, because uh, Bulgaria has been liberated uh, by, uh, with the help of Russia, both uh, from the Ottoman um, uh, dominance uh, in the late 19th century, and then from uh, Nazi. It, we, we were uh, Bulgaria was an uh, ally uh, to Nazi Germany, so there is this very deep, very deep uh, affinity, uh, sense of um, brotherhood. And that sense is actually hurt, it's disappointed. But um, what what I find um, terrible is that people equate, you know, the political regime uh, and uh, Russia. You know, uh, a population yeah. is not defined by its political regime. Uh, so the, 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 the Russian population is also a victim of uh, that aggression and of those politics. Yeah. So um, I guess if we if we move then to the um, matter at hand, which is um, discussing the book Capitalism on Edge, um, there's many things I kind of I would query or um, disagree with, but I have to say um, what would have appreciated the most about the book, and I mean we've spoken about it before in academic contexts, but it bears repeating um, in this context as well, is um, that it's very. I find it very honest and imaginative in and also kind of politically and intellectually forthright in being kind of straightforward in its attempt to break through the kinds of um the leg- 20th century legacies you know that continue to stymie our thought and our kind of political creativity and imagination so I, you know i appreciate that and also the chapter on critical theory i think is as i've i know i've told you before but um it is i think one of the best short accounts of critical theory as a phenomenon that i've read and it deserves to be you know it's an excellent introduction to critical theory and deserves to be on um, university reading lists in that you know in that capacity so, but beyond beyond the kind of the um, the critical theory, there are some concepts or uh, discussions, ideas which are distinctive, I think, to the argument in the book. Um, and I wanted to talk through them in a bit more detail. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, you can explain them out for our listeners a bit. So, one of these concepts is this idea of the crisis of the crisis of crisis of capitalism, <laughs> and you talk about this um, in some detail. And I wanted, if you wondered, if you could explain what you mean by it. Um, yes. Uh, so there has been all this talk about the crisis of capitalism. Uh, the Financial Times at some point ran um, just shortly after the, the, the meltdown, the financial meltdown of 2008, uh, ran a series, uh, Capitalism in Crisis. So there was all this talk. And as I was you know, listening closely to this talk about crisis of capitalism, I didn't see any crisis of capitalism. So capitalism as a 
engine uh, of um, economic growth, of profit creation, was never really in crisis. Um, even in a broader sense, um, if we understand capitalism versus a market economy, no, there was no crisis. It was doing very well its job of profit creation. Um, in a broader sense, as a social system, as a society, as living in a capitalist society, in what sense could there be a crisis? There was no revolution in the offing, nowhere. Uh, so it was capitalism as a social system was not really threatened. Socialism, there was some recovery of an interest in socialism, but not that much, you know, uh, among the, the young. But there was no socialist utopia in, in yeah. really putting capitalism uh, under threat. Do you so mean, there was no are real you, are challenge. You talking, are you talking of things like Occupy? Is that what you mean by the yes. recovery of interest? Yeah. Yes. Um so there was uh, this general sense of a malaise, something is wrong. Uh, society experiences itself in a kind of chronic inflammation. It is yeah. sick. And yet capitalism itself is not in crisis. So what I call, I describe this situation uh, as a crisis of the crisis or, uh, in the following sense. So if we're in a crisis, any entity that enters a crisis. It's a deep challenge to the survival of this body. Uh, it has three possible um, exits of the crisis, usually a short-lived, but we've been talking about the crisis for 20 years. So yeah. these three, three possible exits, death, returning to the pre-crisis situation, some sort of a healing, or a radical transformation to a new state. Now, but the perpetuation of crisis management, this, this discourse of crisis and the permanent you know, crisis management, it became the new normal. It yeah. created a situation in which the crisis itself entered into a crisis. So it's, it's, we, we're getting us in a stuck, a stuck in a perpetual crisis management. Now, um, and, and none of the, these three possible outcomes apply. So for, in, in my reading of, 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 of what's going on, precarity or this massive ubiquitous insecurity becomes this perpetual feature of life, embracing you know the 99 percent, uh, figuratively speaking. So um, in this sense, I speak of crisis of crisis or a meta crisis of capitalism, like a crisis entering its own crisis. So that mean does that mean that there are those three options that you outlined that they exist to exit from from this kind of um, bizarre interregnum, and mm. that then once we did, we, we it would be back to something kind of approaching or resembling more the development of the last two centuries. Would that would that follow from from your idea of a crisis of of the crisis? Uh, well, the, the options are, are still there, uh, and we're still stuck, by the way. But uh, so from the left, we have this idea of, of going back to the post-war welfare state with its relative inclusive prosperity. Um, now, I don't think this is a good option because uh, there was a very stiff price to pay to that inclusive prosperity, yeah. Well, first of all, it was you know very bureaucratically managed capitalism. Uh, that we destroyed the environment, so that's a no go. But it is a possible 
exit, yes. And and I think there is a, a very very likely that we're getting there. Um, I don't think it's, it's the right direction to move at all. So, and do you think this kind of crisis of the crisis, is that also a crisis for the for the left in the sense that it is, you know, if it's still kind of stuck mm. in particular um, modes or habits of thought yeah, yeah, or yeah. trapped in certain kinds of institutions, then the crisis of the crisis is also a crisis of the left. Absolutely. Actually, the incapacity or unwillingness of the left to think away from its uh, the dogmas, the, the, the left dogmas of the past is creating, is generating uh, this situation of being stuck. One such dogma is um, that worker control or the socialization of the means of production, worker control of companies is going to resolve anything. This is, for instance, you know, the, the solution uh, uh, that um, Thomas, Thomas Piketty uh, has launched. Um, this is and why, do you, why, do you th- why do you think it wouldn't work? Hmm. Uh, well, we have China as an example. Take Huawei. Huawei is owned by the workers, uh, or you know, China is is running. Uh, the Communist Party of China is running a, a country as a as a capitalist economy. So, in the current context of global integrated capitalism, if workers own their companies, of course they. It will alleviate some of the exploitation, but they will have to compete and therefore to behave as capitalists in the global economy. So not yeah. much will change. So and this is so this is your this is your disagreement with Piketty and his followers mm-hmm. in terms of greater worker control. Yes, what you know actually Marx has a, a very interesting a brief disagreement uh, with um, the socialists at the time about uh, wage equalization and the like. He says, all these policies, they would only uh, turn society into an abstract capitalist. Think China. So um, because you you make the workers even more complicit, you know, more interested in playing successfully the game of the competitive pursuit of profit. I find that fascinating and um, maybe and something I think we we have to kind of come back to on this pod. But another intriguing concept you mentioned in the book, which I wanted to ask you about as well, was what you call mm. the paradox of emancipation. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you speak about this at a number of different points in the book. So can you um, explain to us what you take to be the paradox of emancipation? Yeah. So the paradox of emancipation applies, for instance, when um, women... Um, you know, in, in the second wave of, of feminism, um, while fighting for equality with men professionally. So they want in the, the rat they, they they want to join the rat race basically on equal terms with men, forgetting that the problem is not with men, but it the problem is with the rat race, with with the yeah. capitalist economy that exploits, alienates, uh, uh, frustrates, ruins people's lives and nature. So, when once women achieved equality with men, they deepened this exploitation uh, and and the dynamics of capitalism. So that is the the paradox of emancipation that very often 
when we want equality and inclusion within a model, we actually make that world, that model, um, uh, more desirable. So we increase its value, although yeah. it might be, you know, very um, negative um, in its implications for human life. Have you had, I mean, is, I mean, you know, I can imagine, um, take your example with feminism, for instance, that it could be seen as controversial in certain quarters or seen to be perhaps undermining, um, you know, genuine achievements made by women or by other groups that might be trapped in this paradox as you outlined it. Mm -hmm. Has it been, has it been taken controversially? Have you had lots of criticism or pushback on, on this point in particular? Um, yes, of course, there is there is uh, pushback, especially as many people have made careers uh, from from uh, fighting for um, women's equality and inclusion uh, in a capitalist economy. Um, but uh, more importantly, there has been also a lot of agreement that uh, we should, uh, you know, fight inequalities and exclusion, but always asking the question, within what system I want to be equal? It's a little bit like um, uh, that joke of Woody Allen with uh, uh, the club, you know. Uh, I don't want to be a member of any club that would have me. It's, it's the reverse. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Hi there. Enjoying BungaCast? Why not drop us a review wherever you get your podcasts? And make sure to follow us at BungaCast across most good social networks, and the bad ones too. Want more BungaCast? Subscribe at patreon.com slash BungaCast for $5 a month, and you get at least two original paywalled episodes a month, sometimes more, which includes extended interviews, our after parties, Alpha Bonus Bonus, where we respond to listeners, and our regular dedicated analyses of current affairs. $10 subscribers get access to our monthly reading club. In the 2023 syllabus that we're currently going through, we discuss in turn freedom, legitimacy, and globalization. Currently, we're going through the brilliant This Life by Martin Hagland, debating secularism, disenchantment, human freedom, and democratic socialism. We'd love for you to join us on our exploration of these themes. So once again, it's patreon.com slash bungacast. Now on with the rest of the show. So I was very um, I was very taken with the idea of the paradox of emancipation, and it's something that I would like to um, you know think about and develop more myself in my own work. But I also wanted to talk about another um, aspect of the argument that I was less convinced by, but again intrigued by, was where you differentiate between what you call precarity capitalism and neoliberal capitalism. Mm -hmm. And the reason I was intrigued is because you know for most people I think they would see precariousness. The development of certain kinds of labor practices, uh, the division of the labor market into two tiers between workers that have certain kinds of protections and then kind of more gig economy workers and uh, the so-called precariat and so on. Mm -hmm. They would see this very much as part of, of contemporary neoliberalism. Um, so can you explain how and why you differentiate between mm -hmm. the two? Okay. Um, now, I'm going to confess, actually, why I felt the need to give a new name to the kind of capitalism that we experience. There has been a lot of criticism 
um, since the, the financial uh, crisis to blame neoliberalism for everything. Yeah. But as we blame neoliberalism for, you know, all the evils of the world, there is one real culprit that runs away, and this is capitalism itself. Yeah. So I wanted to give this new language in order to say, these are all configurations, and I have four, I, I go through four stages of development of capitalism. These are all configurations. Could you tell us the, what the four stages yeah, are? Yeah, of the same entity, capitalism. So uh, there are some features that stay the same, and neoliberal capitalism has those features of the pursuit of profit, of the destruction of nature. Um, okay, so to recall the four stages or the uh, uh, stages in the life uh, of capitalism, we have the new li- the, the liberal form, the laissez-faire capitalism of the 19th century. Um, then, um, then we have uh, well the crisis. Uh, that model in the early 20th century, uh, the emergence of uh, the um, uh, the emergence of uh, welfare capitalism uh, that took most of the 20th century. Then we have neoliberal capitalism as a, some sort of an attempt to recover some of the features of the liberal capitalism based on on individual initiatives. So entrepreneurial capitalism of the 19th century was based on individual initiative and and not much state intervention. So there was an attempt uh, in the late 20th century to recover some of that entrepreneurial spirit of capitalism by uh, reducing the intervention of the state in the economy. And then we have the contemporary form of capitalism, which I call precarity capitalism uh, in the early 21st century. Now, the, the reason why I, I, I claim uh, that there is uh, that precarity capitalism has eclipsed neoliberal capitalism is partly because the, uh, as in the analysis of capitalism, the label neoliberal has been so stretched. Yeah. It has come to mean so many incompatible things that it becomes part of the problem. It, it doesn't clarify anything anymore. So the, this label um, emerged only uh, already in the 1938, the first yeah. use by Alexander Rustow, um, when he spoke of ordo-liberalism as a f- new form of liberalism, which is marked by state intervention, by the active state management of the economy for the purposes of profit maximization. Yeah. Yeah. So how can we call the, uh, uh, the, the, the withdrawal of the state after, you know, in the 80s and 90s um, from um, the management of the economy and the, the state intervention in the economy with the same name? Um, I, I believe that um, also, so when Foucault uh, wrote, uh, used the term in the late 70s, he actually had in mind, he had observed the development of welfare capitalism. So the bureaucratic management of, of the economy. Um, so I propose in, in this taxonomy or typology that I've introduced that we speak of neoliberal capitalism um, 
in terms of motivation, so in, in, you know, there are two, two factors um, marking um, the difference between neoliberal and, and the contemporary form. In this, uh, so the, the one factor is how are actors motivated to participate in the system? And the yeah. other is uh, what does public authority take on itself as legitimate functions of the state? Yeah. So there's this beautiful book by um, Luc Boltanski and Yves Cepello uh, called The New Spirit of Capitalism, where they describe this motivation as this sexy attraction of, of, of um, the new spirit of entrepreneurial freedom. Um, you know, you uh, make money by, by doing some program by the swimming pool. So yeah. it's the, the newly gained freedom of not being stuck in one job um, and with bosses that tell you what to do. Um, so this kind of a sexy capitalism was the, the spirit of neoliberal capitalism. But this motivation through um, freedom, through um, um, this kind of um, imagination of, of, of control over one's life uh, has been, uh, I think, almost entirely replaced by motivation through fear, fear of falling out, fear of losing yeah. a job, fear of losing it all. As uh, in one survey I quote in the book, a survey of, of, of um, millionaires, uh, over 80% were confessing in this survey of American billionaires that um, they would rather quit um, the effort of making more and more money, but uh, they can't do that. Um, they, they prefer a life of leisure and pleasure, but they cannot do, in, in, in the most uh, used term is out of fear of losing it all. So this insecurity, this fear is... The, the, the landmark um, of um, contemporary capitalism. The other, the other distinctive uh, feature is that while neoliberal capitalism is committed to competition, the contemporary form, precarity capitalism, is committed to competitiveness. And often you achieve that competitiveness by stifling competition. Now, we, we see it very um, clearly nowadays in the European Union, for instance, as uh, countries are pushing um, for more and more the European Commission, which has a very strict competition policy. It doesn't allow uh, state intervention in the economy. Now, member states are pushing very seriously for the European Commission to allow um, national champions to be created. So with, with sweetheart deals, uh, merging, so reducing competition for the sake of competitiveness. So, I mean, I this, I mean, I have to say, I'm like I said, I mean, I'm fantastically intrigued by the idea, and I certainly take your point about the way in which kind of neoliberalism as a term was kind of stretched to almost to the you know to the point of um, total kind of vacuousness. Mm. Um, that's said, I keep on, you know, I find it's also one of these terms that's very difficult mm. to, to do without. But so yeah. when would you, when would you date the end of neoliberalism to then in your schema? When does it end? Yes. When does precarious capitalism begin? Um, I would date it. And, 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 and that's just because you're pushing me to date it. Yes. Uh, at the very turn of the century. So there's, um, there is a proliferation of commitments in uh, national economic programs 
to competitiveness. In the European Union, such a document was um, uh, was the, the so-called Lisbon, we call it the Lisbon program. Um, it is um, a document, uh, kind of economic policy ambitions uh, accepted, uh, adopted at the European Council, that is all the member states, heads of states of, uh, of uh, EU uh, countries. That declared that they will uh, turn the European economy into the most competitive uh, economy in the world by year 2020. So this language, this commitment to competitiveness came into um, a policy, became a policy priority around year 2000. So this is where I would date. So you don't. So the beginning of precarity capitalism is with this this turn of the new century. The new century, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess this gets to you know one of the key questions. Then is um, your view is given the crisis of the crisis, and given your kind of sensitivity to um, this quite the systemic question. So not and avoid or being attentive to the paradox of emancipation and the questions of you know is it systemic transformation or merely inclusion mm-hmm. that one wants. So you see capitalism as something to be abolished or transcended or improved or reformed. Mm. Um, I mean, how? what is your view then on that kind of central perennial question for the left? I think we are standing now at a very unique point in history when there is enough disgruntlement, broad disgruntlement uh, against this precarity uh, the suffering that precarity causes to workers, to owners of capital, to 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 all the working population, um, that just fighting the engine of precarity, and that is the the, the, the rush for for profit, the competition for profit, might might help us transcend capitalism, move to a different configuration of social um, of societal relations of a new society a new social order now I am not into uh, designing blueprints for alternatives you know my goal is to say to identify the current moment as this unique opportunity and say think about enabling conditions so the, the most Difficult point in, in, in this moment, in this historic juncture, is that precarity is disempowering and even debilitating. So as people are, are live under all these pressures, they have no, neither the energy nor the headspace to engage politically. So I think that an enabling condition for people to regain some control, to become actors, politically engaged, intelligent, critical, um, powerful actors, they need a breathing space. So an enabling condition actually paradoxically is to appease uh, capitalism, to reduce the the competition, um, to free more space away from work, so that people can start thinking big again. Because under, under the pressures of precarity, we all think very much focused on, on the here and now in a crisis management mode. 
that makes us very conservative and even reactionary. So that goes to my next question, which is to do with your, you've mentioned the environmental crisis um, and your concern for it and the way in which kind of earlier systems of capitalism have degraded um, the environment, degraded nature and so on. So how do you, if you're concerned with um, resolving the environmental crisis, how do you see that has to be tackled um, without simply perpetuating a new kind of, you know, a new kind of green capitalism, mm -hmm. which seems to me to be, um, you know, one likely prospect before us, if, if indeed it hasn't already arrived. Mm -hmm. But also, um, how would you, you know, how do you propose to deal with that without simply perpetuating this constant crisis management, as you say yourself, is kind of um, part of the problem? Um, okay, so the ecological crisis and what stands in, in the way of solving it. I think that humanity has both the scientific uh, capacity and the resources to solve. What stands to solve that crisis, what stands in the way is the insecurity under which people, businesses, workers, capitalists, everybody... Um, out of insecurity, want to stay in the old polluting economy. So in order to unleash these intellectual and material resources for um, solving the economic crisis, we first have to free people from their dependence of their livelihoods in, polluting, in, in the polluting economy. So how do we do that? You know that's 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 the question because you cannot simply commit to economic uh, to to eco, you know very hefty ecological goals um, and say um, well uh, you know people would lose their jobs um, but um, it's for the broader good for the you know the sake of future generations this is this simply cannot happen in a democracy because the democrats will not support such a project. So we need to um, create the enabling conditions for people to commit to that, to those environmental goals. And this is what, what some of my book is dedicated to, how to square social justice and economic justice. So how does that, I mean, how does that play out practically, would you say, or what kinds of institutions might help bring that about? Um, Okay, uh, we have we have some of the institutions. So the institutions uh, of, of 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 democratic and accountable uh, political order are both well. They can they can serve uh, to to deliver that, um, but I think what is necessary is a push towards um, certain policies. Um, for instance, if we have to choose between uh, the now fashionable universal basic income or um, um, employment insurance uh, to stabilize people's lives, I would not support that. I would rather support um, what I call universal basic employment, that is uh, job sharing, because uh, we don't want to be trapped in a productivist kind of, you know, workaholic lives, uh, we want to be um, to decrease our participation in the economy while giving 
a place for everybody uh, to uh, participate. Um, where, where, um, how did you? I don't. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I was talking about concrete kind of um, concrete proposals for right. mm -hmm. resolving, as you say, kind of um, yeah. questions of economic justice and the environmental mm -hmm. question as well. Right. So, one of the uh, groups that is most afflicted by precarity are the self-employed. So not, you know, there, there, there's something being done for workers, but the self-employed in most European countries, for instance, they don't even have unemployment insurance. Yeah. So some of the policies that we need to implement are very trivial. Every, they are known. Um, so that, that program doesn't sound uh, very um, ambitious even. And yet, and yet these things are not being done. Therefore, they're, they have to be our ambition. And on the question of, you know, the um, how do you avoid simply by be, you know, um, I suppose the ecological crisis, how do you avoid simply perpetuating um, the long emergency or this kind of rule mm. by perpetual crisis management? Isn't that a danger for your position? I don't. I, I don't follow you. How can that be a danger? Well, <laughs> in the beginning, you at the beginning you set out the you know this how we the one of the problems being constant crisis management, mm -hmm, and you mm -hmm. laid this out as part of the crisis of the crisis. So yeah, yeah. I suppose my thinking right. or one of my concerns is that if you know if configuring society to address an e the ecological crisis, if that is to be our task, mm -hmm. then doesn't that just perpetuate the problem of being oh, yeah. Con oh, yeah. in this loop of a constant perpetual crisis? Yeah, uh, absolutely. That's why in order to start to enable people to think long term, you know, so either you impose uh, the program on saving nature in an autocratic matter, manner from above, that yep. might work. I'm not a fan, but that would surely work. Um, or you believe in, in green capitalism. I don't think that can work either because even if we rely on clean technologies, the, the, the impetus of capitalism to exploit and, and to make profit by exploiting resources um, and cutting safety standards and, 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 and exploiting people would always be there. So green capitalism is not the way to go. The, uh, what alternative do we have left? It is to create the breathing space for people to think long term. And this is stabilize their livelihoods by not predicating it on right. holding one, two, three jobs. Yeah. But give them the you know give them the minimal um, resources. Also, another very important thing in fighting precarity is uh, to um, enrich the commons. So what? Uh, so let, let let me put it this way: Why suddenly inequality became such a disturbing fact? Why comparing? ourselves to others, our income, our wealth to others, how come it became such a great point? Um, I think it is because when we live in conditions when, um, you know, in the Commons, for instance, the uh, investment in, in public health care, 
diminishes and we don't have a reliable um, healthcare service, reliable access to education. So when the commons are depleted, you know, the money to, to take care of, of the essential things of life, then reliance on your personal income becomes more important. Yeah. But that's, you know, to avoid the, uh, the paradox of, uh, of emancipation, um, redistribution is not going to fix it if we don't invest in the commons. Yeah, yeah. No, I find that, I mean, um, I, I agree with that. Um, so... Uh, moving towards the end of our of our discussion, um, the book was published in 2020, um, and obviously, you know, a lot has happened since then, to put it mildly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I was wondering how you think the book has fared in light of what has happened over the last several years, um, and if mm-hmm. those developments that we've seen, um, particularly associated with the lockdown and with greater geopolitical competition between East and West, how far does that? Um, how far does that reinforce or go against the model of precarity capitalism that you mm-hmm. outline in the book? Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> the book uh, came out in January 2020 and the pandemic hit in February. So yeah. I thought, oh, my God, my book is dead. Yeah. Uh, but actually, there has been a lot of interest exactly because the pandemic brought to light what had remained hidden in plain sight. And that is a massive precarity because the pandemic confronted us with this hmm, strange paradox that um, even the most affluent, scientifically advanced, politically sophisticated countries could not cope with a virus that was neither too deadly nor completely unknown. So we were simply not prepared because our our societies themselves had become precarious by disinvesting from healthcare, uh, disinvesting in public services, um, weakening us both as individuals and as societies. So this kind of precarity capitalism has depleted our resources. So... Uh, I think the pandemic uh, made this clear. And the way the pandemic was handled, actually, was in a rather neoliberal fashion. Because what our governments did is instead of um, serious investment in um, increasing hospital capacity, increasing um, the medical uh, capacity, uh, they imposed lockdowns. And, and basically burdened, in a very neoliberal fashion, in fact, burdened the individuals with the responsibility to, to, to fight the pandemic rather than, uh, uh, see what I mean? It, it, yeah, it, yeah, it's absolutely. really the logic of, of putting the burden on individuals rather than investing in, in public services. Does that, does that undermine the model of precarity capitalism if we had this kind of throwback to neoliberal policy? Th- th- this, well... So precarity capitalism is an extension of neoliberalism. It's every stage of capitalism actually absorbs the features of the previous. It doesn't negate it. So what I'm saying is that it's a neoliberal logic of dumping responsibility on individuals and on groups that cannot carry out that responsibility. And that logic is, is preserved, is carried over into precarity capitalism. 
Um, and then on the question of the geopolitical increased geopolitical competition, how mm. does that, and particularly with the invasion of Ukraine, um, how does that, um, how does the arguments in your book kind of fare in light of this? Um, hmm. It's it's interesting how everybody thinks that uh, Ukraine is a game changer. Uh, I don't think it is. Uh, our societies, for, for instance, you take inflation. I, I think that inflation was not caused by the war. Uh, of course, the war contributed um, with the energy crisis, but uh, the way the way the states uh, dealt with the financial crisis with the pandemic actually they accrued all that risk into the public purse. So they had to cope with that by printing more money. Whoever could print, print it. So inflation has less to do with Ukraine than with, 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 with the neoliberal way of managing the crisis. So I, I don't think that, that Ukraine is such a game changer. So you think and it can be you think it can be kind of it sits alongside your model of precarity yeah. capitalism. Yeah. 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 Unless okay. unless unless it it makes, uh, for instance, the U.S. and Europe um, collaborate rather than compete. Um, but the, uh, Joe Biden's um, uh, policy uh, for green investment, uh, actually, it is uh, poaching businesses from Europe. So there is no collaboration there. There's a competition. So the same yep. logic yep. Uh, is, is there. This has been fantastic, Albena, and I think it will give lots of ideas and insights to our listeners that we'll want to return to in future. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.